This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash Patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com slash Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. What's up, everybody? Hello and welcome to the first ever, and I cannot believe I'm saying this, episode 50 of the Best Seats Podcast, the only podcast bringing you interviews with some of the most talented people in and around the hospitality industry from right here in Orange County to the rest of Southern California and beyond each and every episode. I'm your host, Crawford McCarthy, founder of The Best Seats. Thank you, as always, to my friend, Allie Coyle, who provides music for the show. You can find more of her work at AllieCoyleMusic.com, or you can see her in person at any of her family's three restaurants if you're here in Orange County, Fable and Spirit over in Newport Beach, Dublin 4 Gastropub, and Wineworks for Everyone. Both of those are in Mission Viejo. As a reminder, if you enjoy the show, please be sure to leave a rating and or a review wherever you are listening to it. It helps other folks discover the show. And go to TheBestSeats.com for more content just like this. Um, episode 50, I, first and foremost, so this show is going to be different. Um, if you listen to episode 49 or all the way back from the beginning, I think it was episode three or four or five, something like that. Um, my guest is, well, not my guest, my interviewee is my friend Niaz Pirani of Knife and Sport PR. Now, Niaz, basically, long story short, he was a journalist for a long, long time. And over drinks one night, we were joking that he should interview me. This was back, I want to say, like the late 30s of the podcast, things like that. So I joked to him, hey, if I make it to 50, we'll flip the script. I'll be the guest and you can interview me. Now, I did an AMA episode when we led into the new year where everybody was celebrating with their family. I took questions from the audience. So I've technically been the kind of quote unquote guest before. But, um, you know, Niaz is a professional journalist. He has an actual degree. He worked for many, many, many years locally as a journalist. He worked for political campaigns. I mean, the guy has cut his teeth doing a lot of great stuff. So I thought, what better way to celebrate 50 episodes of this podcast than to give a little insight into myself, maybe some behind the scenes, whether this is your very first time listening to the pod or you've been here since the beginning. First and foremost, thank you from the bottom of my heart because none of this would be possible without any of you who listen. If you support on Patreon, thank you that much more because none of this is possible without that. This is a crowdfunded initiative. Everybody who gives a dollar or whatever they give over on patreon.com slash the best seats, every single one of those dollars goes back into the business. You make this possible to all of you, you carpet bag and freeloaders who do support on free feeds. I love you just as well because every single listen, every single click, all of those necessary evils of digital analytics and so forth, everything matters. I never thought I would get to 50 episodes. I never thought I'd get to five episodes. Um, the first episode was one of the scariest things I ever did in my life. So to be at 50 is huge. It feels good. So again, to sit down and kind of flip the script and, and let him kind of take the reins and make me the guest was fun. It was uncomfortable. I didn't like being on the other side of things. Uh, so to all of you other 49 guests, thank you so much for letting me put you in the hot seat like that. Um, 
basically, this is a fun one. Um, I'm, I'm very happy to get it out there. I'm looking forward to 50 more, you know, God willing, 500 more. I hope that you've enjoyed so far. I don't want to take up any more of your time. Your time is precious. And the fact that you are spending some of it here listening to this now means the absolute world to me. So without further ado, episode 50 of the Besties podcast featuring none other than yours truly. I hope you enjoy. Well, obviously, for anybody who listened to episode 49, they know exactly who you are. Niaz, I am excited to sit down 50 episodes of this pokey little show that I never even thought would get off the ground. It was a way to stay busy during the pandemic, and it has turned into a full-on hospitality podcast for Orange County, Southern California, and beyond. Thank you for taking, essentially taking the reins for episode 50. For everybody listening, before we kind of jump in, a little bit of housekeeping here. This one's going to be formatted a little different. I want to do something special for 50 episodes. Um, you know, if it all ended tomorrow, I wanted it to at least kind of go out with something fun, something different to kind of celebrate the the mini milestone of hitting 50 on this thing. So obviously my guest from episode 49, um, you know, way back and in, in kind of the first episode, one of the first handful of episodes I did, Niaz of Knife and Spork PR. Um, everybody just kind of listened to our first podcast, but you have a major journalism background and you came up with the concept of making me the guest essentially for the 50th episode. You kind of wanted to ask some questions and figure out some things to lead to transparency. I've done some AMA episodes before I did one for the new year where people kind of asked whatever they wanted, but you came up with the concept of basically hosting for lack of a better word and kind of driving the conversation. Well, so I feel like you just kind of showed up out of nowhere. <laughs> You're just like, yo, I'm, I'm, I'm Crawford, Orange County. What's up? Like really? It, it kind of happened that way. So I, I want to jump right into it. There's no pretense. Obviously, people can go back and listen to episode 49 if they're not familiar with your background, but they should be at this point. But I want to jump right in and kind of let you fire away with some of your questions and, and dive right into it. Usually I would start with a conversation, but actually I have a, a, a first question for you because it's like a, it's like an Anthony Bourdain question that I always wonder for people um, is what is your earliest food memory? My earliest food memory. So my, so obviously this podcast records in Orange County, um, California. I have lived here over 10 years at this point, just over 10 years. Uh, my godmother lived out here for, at this point, I want to say like 36 years or something like that. She was an East Coaster, New York, Fire Island. Um, she moved out here and lived in Dana Point. And some of my earliest food memories, we used to come out and visit every summer. She was a great cook. She actually wrote a cookbook. Um, it didn't do massive publications. I think it was like 10,000 copies. I have a copy of it. But she was a really good cook. She was a really good hostess. Um, her and her husband would, you know, they would, it was very Mad Men-esque. Uh, they would put on, you know, a gown and a suit and come down and have martinis at five o'clock every single day. You know, have two martinis and a cigarette type of thing. The older they got, that turned into four o'clock and then three o'clock. But some of my earliest food memories are coming out here and sitting and she had this, it, again, it was a 60s kitchen through and through. It was like, you know, avocado green formica countertops and all this stuff. And I just remember eating like food out here in California. And, and you know, at the time I grew up in the East Coast and was raised in Colorado and California was a, a dream and, and not in the sense that I wanted to be here. I didn't know if I wanted to be here until later in my life, but it didn't make sense. Everything was nice. Everything was warm. Everything was perfect temperature. Everything worked out here, at least, you know, as a little kid looking at it. So we would come out here to visit 
and you run on the beach and then you go back and you're eating just a grilled cheese at this ridiculous 60s kitchen. And for whatever reason, those always kind of stuck. And, and she was a driving force along with both of my parents on doing whatever this is that I do now. And so you came from, you were born in Colorado or you came born, from the I East was Coast? born in Connecticut. I was raised in Colorado. My dad worked in media um, for television. He worked for like Discovery Channel, Stars, um, TV, things like that. So I was born in Danbury, Connecticut. We bounced around like Atlanta, Fort Worth, Texas. But my earliest memories are about second grade. We landed in Colorado. So Colorado until freshman year of high school before I went back east for boarding school. Oh, so you like really so grew I, up I in Colorado. So I grew up there, yeah. What's, what's the, were you into food at that time when you were growing up? We were always around food. Um, my parents loved to kind of get dressed up and go out for dinners. You know, my dad came from a very traditional waspy East Coast household. Um, you know, very, for anybody that's ever watched the show Mad Men, that, um, his dad was basically kind of like a Don Draper type of guy. He worked in advertising. So it was very much that home life, um, especially those first couple early seasons of Mad Men. That was kind of his growing up. So you put on a coat and tie, you went to, you know, nice dinners in New York and you were expected to, you know, it wasn't that severe as, you know, be seen, but not heard type of thing. But I had no issue. I wanted to be that. I liked the allure of, oh, this is what adults do. This looks fun. You know, the first cocktail I ever bought was from my grandmother. It was two fingers of Mount Gay rum, three rocks. I'll never forget that. <laughs> and we grew up doing those things. You know, we were, we were, upper middle class, well off, you know, coming to everything that's going on nowadays, we were, you know, privileged white kid doing well for himself. So I grew up around nice restaurants. You know, my dad grew up in New York and the, when he was working in New York, um, I want to say like late early eighties, something like that. You know, he would tell stories of going to the Palm and, you know, politely he and my mom and some family friends were out to dinner one time at an Italian restaurant and big Italian guy comes over and says, excuse me, you know, would you mind moving tables? His Uzi falls out of his jacket and bumps against the table. He oh, goes, shit. this is Mr. Gotti's favorite table. So if you wouldn't mind, we'd like to pay for your dinner if you wouldn't mind moving. Like stories like that. And so I grew up with this romantic image in my head of the big grandiose, you know, the Copa and stuff like that. And then the more I got into restaurants and started to understand the grind and the sacrifice that people make and just how much love and work goes into something simple, not at something like the Copa, but you know, even just one of your clients, like a craft house or something like that, how much work goes into every single plate, it just became this borderline obsession. And then you throw in people like Anthony Bourdain, you know, writers like Michael Ruhlman, you know, uh, I'm going to forget his name. The guy's a literary lion. He wrote Heat and a couple other things. Uh, uh, Bill, B uh, Bill Buford, people like that, it just fueled it. Have you ever worked in a restaurant? No. So that's my greatest downfall that I always apologize for. Um, I never worked in a restaurant. Everybody in my life worked in restaurants. All my friends were restaurants. I grew up doing, um, I, I played sports all throughout high school and college. So I would coach when I wasn't playing. And coaching, you're talking about practices that go, you know, 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. You know, the day that we're recording this, I've got practices tonight for four hours. Lacrosse? Yeah, lacrosse, yeah. Um, so I never had the hours to work in a restaurant. You know, I'd be at the field or I'd be coaching tournaments all weekend, things like that. So afterwards, you go get a beer after the game you befriend everybody that works there. So all my friends were hospitality. Huh. I was, as I like to call it, kind of what I do now is hospitality adjacent. Yeah, really. But yeah, it's, it's, it's my biggest downfall. I know it. It's <laughs> admitting it, admitting your problem is the first step. It's okay, man. I walked, I left Coachella before Daft Punk played. That's my life's biggest downfall. So we all, we all have them. It happens. <laughs> it happens. I was on the field and left because I was tired. Uh, 
So, you know, then you go to boarding school mm-hmm. for freshman year. Mm-hmm. And you got to keep that tradition of white guy stuff alive. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so you're, uh, you're eating boarding school food, not exploring a food scene or anything like that, right? Like, no. So the school that I went to, um, amazing school, I, I, I would go back to it in a heartbeat. I had the time of my life there, um, called Salisbury school up in Northwest Connecticut, tiny town for anybody that knows new England, the welcome sign for most towns is also the thanks for coming sign. You know, you're talking about where the fire station and the post office and the town hall all sit in one building, which is probably a 200 year old house anyway. So there were no restaurants around us. There were, you know, two places that we could order from, but you're also on campus. You live on campus. You don't have a car. You don't, you know, you're 16 year old kid. You're going to school six days a week. You're playing games two days a week. And it was an all boys school. So all we did was go to class, go to the gym, play a game, go to sleep, binge watch Jack Bauer on the weekend. <laughs> that was it. So there was no food. Um, you know, I still, you know, I, I grew up like watching Food Network with my mom, people like, you know, Ina Garten, my, my secret, you know, my backup wife, um, you know, all these, all these people. So I always liked it and I was always fascinated by it, but it was never a passion. I thought I was going to be a Wall Street guy through and through. I, I was full on had Wolf of Wall Street before Wolf of Wall Street was in my mind. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna go to Wall Street. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna make money in summer in Nantucket and just stupid shit. So what, where does the, where does food come in and how did that transition? Stereotypically, and I know that it's a cop-out answer, but it was Bourdain. Same same for me. It was Tony. Kitchen Confidential for me. Yeah, when starting reading those things and then traveling, because we traveled a lot. We were fortunate. My mom worked for Delta for 20 some odd years. So we were able to, especially before 9-11 when seats got very tight, we were able to just jump on planes if they had extra seats. So it was commonplace for us to travel, you know, whether it's out here to California, like I said, or, you know, when I was in Colorado going to New York and traveling for school or Atlanta, you know, Miami, things like that, Texas. So you see different cultures, you see different cuisines. And then when I found Bourdain and I got into his books and, and, you know, he spoke to people in a way that no one else has. And I don't know if anybody else ever will. And personally, I don't think anybody else ever should. I haven't uh, been able to watch a single episode since he passed. It took me a while. It took me about six months to be able to get back into it. And even then it was episodes that I knew and there were comfort ones. But yeah, he he spurred something in me that kind of made me realize, shit, I've led a pretty good life. I should do something with it and I should look and see what I can do and what more I can learn and break beyond those restaurants that I romanticized as a kid. You know, I was never going to go to the Palm. But what about that taqueria right down the street? Like, damn, that food is pretty damn good. You know, not everything was white coat waiters and tableside service with a captain leading your table. It was, no, this place down the road makes damn good food. Go eat it. And so it was, it, it was a parenting thing for me. It was more like I looked at him as a mentor and type of like, oh, shit, I should try this. And then you force yourself to go eat these things. You're like, oh, that was really good. Why did it take me 22 years to learn about this? Honestly, dude, when I worked at the register, like I was 20 one when I started 20 something like that and we were we worked across the street from Taqueria de Anda Mm -hmm. and I remember walking in there one day and this was before I got their food frenzy blog and I remember walking in there one day and I was like yeah I'd like a burrito with uh like carne asada and cheese and like then I started looking at all the like the salsa bars and everything just looked so foreign and overwhelming to me that I like didn't know what I ordered. And then I think I even left and went to Taco Bell. And like when, when I got the I registers. I thought I was the white guy at the table. No, bro. Straight, I, I grew up in Pleasanton, California, bro. I might be the white guy at the table. Uh, no, when when I was working at the register, like my palate was like chicken nuggets and burgers and stuff. And it wasn't until um, 
Kat Wynn from Forward PR was the one who got me working on that food blog. Shout out to Kat. And Little Saigon opened my eyes. Mm-hmm. And then I realized there's all these mom and pop shops. Orange County is actually a really special food place. It's very unique. Yeah, for every culinary oasis, for those that are listening that don't live in the area, and maybe do live in the area, for every, you know, for every Aliso Viejo that's just bland and there's not much there, you can dig through and definitely find some gems. And there are neighborhoods, especially North Orange County, places like that, that, and especially now that I've gotten into this, you know, I think three years ago at this point, there's some amazing places here. You just got to be willing to find them. Yeah. So was there a meal for you that like opened your eyes to, you know, things that were beyond your regular culinary palate? I mean, I think it was the first time that I had legit Indian food because, you know, growing up the way I did, and I think a lot of people did, um, you know, 90s, early 2000s, a lot of what you see for, you know, for lack of a better term, food that was foreign to me, not essentially foreign food because it's not foreign for everybody, it was foreign to me, was shaped by stereotypes, whether it's, you know, film, TV, you know, things like that. And there were stereotypes that I remember having as a kid of like, oh, you know, this isn't good or that's not good for these reasons, which are completely true. And just, you know, minor, you know, kind of like micro racist things almost a little bit towards food. And I had predispositions, but the first time that I really sat down and had some of these things and it was like, oh shit, this is good. And I have been knocking it and I'm wrong. And I need to now try to learn about it and understand it because that was really good tasting and I want that more. F- um, French food was a big one for me as far as not, oh, yeah, not techniques, but you know, I vividly remember being in elementary school and this was in Colorado Springs at the time and there was this little uh, brasserie downtown. No idea why it was there. Not a target market at all. But this amazing brasserie and I was like a fourth grader. And we went there for French class because it was just on the road for the school. Teacher's like, all right, order whatever you want. Everybody got you know, chicken, this chicken, this chicken. I was like, I'll the escargot. She's like, why? I'm like, because it's different and it's a French restaurant and I want to try things. You know, in, in my household, it was very much always try things once. And again, kind of going back to those stories that my parents would tell about these restaurants and these times in New York, I wanted that. So I was like, well, then I need to grow up. So I need to be able to do this. And I think it was, I think it was horrible when I was a fourth grader. I'm like, this is weird. It's gummy. I don't like it. That's a shit ton of garlic. Like, what do you mean they're cooking with wine? Does that mean I'm <laughs> drunk? What's happening? Like, I had no context. Like, I just finished like social studies. I'm like, yeah, that Ben Franklin, he was a cool fella. Like, I'm and they were eating snails. I'm like, snails. but it was things like that. It was just my parents pushed to try everything once. And, you know, like most little kids, I think I was like 10 when my dad was finally like, yeah, you can have a sip of my scotch. And it was horrible because I didn't have the palate for it. And he's like, yeah, that'll nip that in the bud. You're not going to drink for a while. <laughs> yeah, so now you don't want it. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I mean, there were, there were a couple of aha moments. But the funny part is that there's been aha moments even since doing this, where you go to a media dinner and you see what somebody's doing, whether it's LA, Orange County, San Diego, and you just look like, damn, that person has committed their life to making that taste that way. And it's damn good. Yeah, I think the Burmese restaurant, is it in San Diego or Oceanside that you were posting about? Dijamara, yeah. Yeah, for anybody listening, I think that's episode like 47 of the podcast. Go back and listen to that one. Dijamara, if you live in the area, um, is a mandatory one. Simran and her team down there are just fucking awesome. And uh, that that kind of loops uh, And uh, Balinese, not Burmese. Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. No, you're good. I have nothing against Burmese cuisine either. Um, they could be interchangeable for all I know. I don't know Burmese food. But. I've been thinking of Burmese superstar for a little while. <laughs> Headed up to the Bay it's on my head uh speaking of which for me you know like following your social media and um your posts since i met you 
I don't know if this is like a, a great assumption or not, but like it seems to me one of the first restaurants that you really fell in love with in Orange County was Broadway. Yeah, um, Broadway was a big aha moment for me. So for people that are listening that may not know me that well, um, I'm a big spirits and wine person. Like the alcohol industry is very fascinating to me. Alcohol is fascinating to me. It's something that through different aspects of my life, I've changed my relationship with and I needed to come to terms with understanding it. You know, um, I had some stuff going on when I was younger, kind of related to family and, and lack of maturity on my part and stuff where I was drinking an irresponsible amount and like drinking cheaply and you know not drinking well. And so I needed to educate myself on these products, cue in that, you know, much like Bourdain kind of spurred my fascination with travel and understanding food and understanding cultures, healthy or not, you know, Mad Men was at the peak of its kind of premiere during these years where I was starting to understand alcohol and being fascinated by different spirits and different cocktails. Obviously, cue Donald Draper. Obviously, now, you know, we look at his character as this tragic misogynist, you know, product of the times, but he was enticing. There's a reason that John Hamm got awarded for playing that character because he played it well. What was Draper's thing of choice? Old fashioned. I didn't know what an old fashioned was. Google or an old fashioned is. It's the old school, you know, not the way that I would make them now, but, the, you know, you muddle the orange, the sugar cube, the bitters, the whole nine yards. So I start seeking out old fashions because they're delicious. And I'm like, well, this is better than a beer. And you start to understand them. They're so delicious. So I go to Broadway because a friend turns me onto it. You know, cue Michael Rooney, uh, beverage director now for the entire Vodka group. He was the lead bartender there. That's his baby. Uh, my personal opinion, best bar program in Southern California. It, it's one of the best, I think. Rooney's a, somebody that I'm, I'm very proud to call a friend at this point. He makes an old fashioned. At the time it was, and I'll never forget, it was two ounces of Angel's Envy, you know, I want to say a dash of Angostura, a dash of aromatic bitters, and like a two-to-one Demerara syrup or a turbo syrup. And it just blew the doors off everything I knew. And it was that aha moment, like when I had food as a kid, I'm like, are you kidding me? This can this taste like, like this? Yep. What the fuck? This like, doesn't taste like I gasoline? I literally sat, and again, for anybody who's been to Broadway, this is a nice restaurant. Like it, it, Amar Santana should have won his season of Top Chef. His restaurants are phenomenal. You know, his restaurants don't play around. And Broadway is obviously his baby. This was before Vodka. This is before the hall for those listening in Orange County that know those restaurants. And I just remember sitting at the middle of the bar, looking at this glass, trying to figure out, you know, the meme of like the, the woman with all the mathematical things going around her face trying to fit. That was me looking at this glass like, how the fuck did you do this? And it was just a lightning storm went off. And so after that, it was you know, research, you know, I found Eric Castro, bartender at largest podcast, just dove into that head first as soon as he premiered that. I mean, it was all about books. It was just learning and learning. So Broadway was an early love for me. Um, I'm a big fan of a bone luge for people that don't know what that is. It's if you order a bone marrow dish, <laughs> once you're done eating the bone marrow, you take a selective spirit, usually it's bourbon or, you know, some kind of whiskey, like an, a scotch or something, and you pour it down the bone yep. and you shoot it. And I remember... I, I was intoxicated, but eating the bone marrow at Broadway and doing a bone luge during the middle of a Saturday service in the middle of a bar. And they were for it. Like, again, like Rooney poured the shot, I think, or it was his backup, you know, uh, Mark at the time, who's no, he's in Texas now, but they poured the shot middle of the bar. And I just remember everybody looking around. These are, these are well-off people. Like it's not a, it's, it's a pricey <laughs> restaurant for a reason, right. but people looking around being like, what the hell did he just do? I'm like, oh, it's a bone luge. It's great. And it just is this, I have an obsessive personality when I see something, I want to learn everything about it. So I see hospitality and I see, again, Bourdain did it on an episode. Like he was in Toronto or something. I'm like, that looks fun. I want to do that sometime. So then I get this wild idea in my head. I'm like, I'll do it right now at Broadway. 
and they were accommodating enough and they, they keep letting me come back. <laughs> so yeah, broad Broadway was an early love for me and still is. I, I, I adore that place. I, I took one step forward before I connected you back to Orange County. So how did you end up from school to Orange County? Long story short, uh, my parents were going through a divorce. My godmother, who I mentioned earlier, lived in Dana Point. She passed away. Legally, they needed somebody to live at her estate while her estate was settled. Um, again, she's got like this little beach bungalow right in Dana Point that's been there for 40 some odd years. My dad still lives there now um, with his wife, but they needed somebody to do it. My dad was in San Francisco at the time. I was looking to transfer out of school anyway. I was in Ohio at the time and just not happy where I was. And I figured, you know, I was like a gold prospector in the 1800s. I'm like, well, I'll go west. <laughs> and it just, it just kind of spurred from there. And you, so you ended up back in Orange County then? Yeah. Yeah. I went, um, I went from, <laughs> I went from growing up in Colorado, prep school in Connecticut, college in Ohio, and then out here to California. So I really wanted to get my share of, you know, winters before I decided to settle <laughs> in a place that doesn't really have one. That's true. Actually, my parents are from Indiana and my dad said that just, he, he, they literally sold their house for like some insanely cheap amount because he said he was just tired of shoveling snow. Basically. Well, it's time for a little commercial. Yeah. The last year provided so many challenges for restaurant owners. Now that they're finally getting a chance to open their doors again to the public, it can only be an exciting thing. However, some of those challenges still remain, like hiring new staff after having to let go of them for almost an entire year. That's where Hire Lilo comes in. Custom built from the ground up, by hospitality professionals, Hire Lilo is your destination for restaurant hiring. Applicants can create resumes on the site, set up meetings, use the virtual messaging system to communicate with potential hirees, and more. Restaurants also have a multitude of options to choose from, including selecting mandatory shifts for specific positions, and more. The website is easy to use and is a perfect build-out for the hospitality industry. None of the other fancy stuff are trying to compete with every other industry on the planet for new hires. As I said, it is hospitality specific, making it your destination for hiring. Using the promo code stay strong, all one word, you can create a free job posting today and start to fill those hiring voids. Hire Lilo provides on-site help. They'll sit down and make sure that your restaurant is set up and properly ready to go and that you can utilize all the features Hire Lilo offers. To learn more or to create an account and get job posting now, go to hirelilo.com. That's H I R E L I L O. Dot com. Once again, that's HireLilo.com. I don't know about you, but 2020 had me re-looking at how I live and the space that I live in. Spending so much time at home really had me reevaluating how certain things worked and didn't in my living space. One of the main things, as an avid home cook and an obvious supporter of restaurants, was gardening. Anybody who enjoys food at all will be able to tell you that something you've grown yourself will taste infinitely better than anything you can buy at a store. That's where Ashley Irene of Heirloom Potager comes in. Heirloom Potager designs, installs, and maintains seasonal culinary gardens for chefs and foodies in Orange County. They provide organic gardening methods and bespoke build-outs used to preserve the heirloom varietals that they'll provide for seeds. An approachable and exciting endeavor, no matter if you're a seasoned restaurateur or a stay-at-home chef. Owner Ashley Irene's experience, expertise, and enthusiasm is only matched by her professionalism. For more information on how you can set up a consultation to get your own culinary garden space set up, go to heirloompotager.com. That's heirloom, H-E-I-R, 
L-O-O-M, Potage, P-O-T-A-G-E-R.com today. Once again, that's heirloompotage.com. Basically. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, speaking of Dana Point, it's funny because one time I was driving my friend to Craft House and like, you know, a Woody pulled up next to us and he's looking around and he's like, what, what is this place? It looks like a movie. <laughs> and I, I think you're right. There is some type of like charming allure to South Orange County, to Orange County itself. I, I come from the Bay Area. I grew up in the Bay Area. Then I came here when I was in high school. And then uh, when I started my business, I moved back to the Bay Area and ended up back here. And honestly, I don't really want to live anywhere else. I love Orange County. It's intoxicating. Yeah, for all its faults, it's Southern California is an intoxicating place. So, you know, what, what are some of the other spots that, you know, kind of piqued your interest in your early food journalism days? And then how did you end up going from, you know, saute and uh, locale to podcast? So, cause you had a choice too. You, you could have just stopped as well. So I, again, I was working in sports marketing um, for an equipment manufacturing company based out of Minnesota when I kind of during these years that I was discovering how much I really liked food and cocktails and, and hospitality. Again, like I said, all my friends were in it. I wasn't working in it because I was coaching, you know, high school and youth sports year round, things like that, and kind of working on the side remotely um, before that was cool. So no big deal. Um, there were some places like 370 Common, um, Ryan Adams, you know, Harley is now in that space now with Greg Daniels, which is a place that I adore. But 370 Common was a big one because it was great food and it was no bullshit. It's a type of place where you could go in and, you know, they were known for their fried chicken on Sundays where they would completely get rid of the rest of the restaurant menu and offer just their fried chicken dinner. Which now you can get it buttermilk. And yeah. Orange. Yeah. Buttermilk. And I want to say it's up in orange. Um, don't quote me on that, but look, old them town. Up. old town. Yeah. Buttermilk fried chicken. Definitely look it up. Ryan Adams is a great guy, but I thought that was really stubborn of them in Laguna beach, you know, and this is while I'm learning the relationships with the different beach towns because they all have different vibes. Um, I thought it was stubborn of them. And I liked that they were like, no, fuck you. Like on Sunday, it's fried chicken. You don't like it, go somewhere else. But you could go in there. You could get a shot of whiskey. You could get, you know, every, when you sat down at 370 Common, everybody got a little bowl um, of these little pretzels with this mustard that would just wipe you clean. I mean, you inhaled this thing wrong and this mustard would wipe out you're, you could walk in there with cancer and it's gone. <laughs> like you eat this mustard. You're like, Oh, I'm in remission. Everything's fine now. Like it was so good. And actually funny story about that. This is how much I like that restaurant. When Greg Daniels um, was opening Harley in that space, he was getting rid of their old plates and stuff like that as he should, because he's building his own space and, and shout out to him. I'm, I'm a big fan of what he does in Harley as a restaurant, but he actually was giving away those little bowls that they used to serve the pretzels in. And I actually went down and picked up, I think I have 10 of them. So that's kind of how deep my passion for that restaurant can, went. Can I give one shout out to them actually? Mm -hmm. To this day, the best calamari I've ever had anywhere in my life. Super Because good. they deep fried like the herbs with it, the rosemary and stuff, and then served it with like charred lemon. It was. It was a good spot. So that yeah. one was a fan. Again, I, when I moved here, I was in Dana Point, um, like I said, but then I left and I live in Aliso. I've been there since, you know, kind of locked into my apartment. Uh, Laguna Beach is right down the road. So Laguna was kind of the first beach town that I was really digging into. You know, you go for drinks at rooftop then you'd kind of bounce around, you need something to eat. So yeah, 370 and Broadway were big influences for me. Uh, Moulin down there, I'm a big fan of Laurent and kind of what he does with his spots. I, I love his food. Like I said, I, I have a sweet spot in my heart for France. So being kind of big, able to get authentic, you know, quote unquote experience for there was fantastic. 
you know, getting to meet people like Pascal and, and some of these other folks when I started, like you said, with Saute and, and Locale, I, I don't know. Um, the company I was working for was sold and I had the option to stay on board if I wanted to move to Minneapolis. I don't know if you've been to Minneapolis. It's lovely. It's a fun town, but it also gets to like negative 30. And like I said, I did my winter time, so I'm not going to Minneapolis. And I was looking to change careers and I basically was like, well, I got nothing to do. Why don't I try writing? Because it's just, just about the most arrogant thing I think anybody could say. I don't have a journalism degree. I live on spell check. Thank God for Grammarly. Y'all can keep your four KTVs. Grammarly is the best invention that's ever helped me. And I reached out and I basically hunted down every editor in Orange County on LinkedIn and Locale put up a posting. They were like, well, we're looking for freelance because now I know they're always looking for freelance. And they gave me a spot and your, your boy Blake was my very first interview. So I was nervous as hell. I sat down and all of a sudden I'm getting a three page spread on a chef in Dana Point. That I, was a big story, man, with well, big ass art and like yeah, everything. Yeah, it was huge. I was incredible. I'm like, this is easy as fuck. What are people complaining about? I just <laughs> I emailed this and yeah, just show up at Craft House and write an interview. I went to journalism school for like years, man. What the hell? <laughs> Look, I feel looking back on it now, I'm like, damn, that was white privilege. Like I just walked in. They're like, yeah, hey, here's a three page spread. I'm like, why? Uh, I don't have any, you should not give this to me at all. Hey. <laughs> you have no reason. You know what? Sometimes you luck out and that's just the way it starts, man. I mean, that's what it started. And then, you know, shout out to Michelle Grow, who was with Saute. Um, shout out she, to Michelle. She's, dope. she's awesome. I think she moved on. She was with uh, Melissa's Produce. I don't know if she's still there, but Michelle was amazing. She, we basically met for a meeting and she gave me the same opportunity to write a story. And, you know, two weeks later, I find myself sitting in Craig Strong's backyard. Bar- he's, well, he's barbecuing with his wife and kid. And, and I'm sitting there with a friend of mine while she photographs interviewing him. I have no idea why anybody let me do this. I have no, no, I have no journalism degree. I didn't have a degree at the time. I was still finishing college because I decided to go the John Belushi route from Animal House and just eventually get there. I, I don't know why people let me do this. So when everything shut down, like you mentioned, the podcast was just out of desperation for my friends. You know, these are people that I've gotten to know and all of a sudden their businesses were getting shut down and taken away and you know, you work in PR and as we kind of talked about in your, you know, episode one episode back, um, people don't have budgets for that anymore. People, their stuff dried up. So if they didn't have it before, what do they have now? So it was purely just survival. And I had no idea what was going to happen with it. And what were those like early days of the podcast? Like, were you, were did you fucking already know terrifying. How, yeah? were No, they- <laughs> no. Oh God, no, 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 no. I went from showing up and doing freelance writing and going to media events and handling social media, quote unquote, takeovers for magazines to all of a sudden trying to be a Twitch streamer with a live call in and a Google voice setup. Like I was so goddamn ambitious. It was a nightmare. I, so again, I went out, I, well, the state of California went out cause they gave me a stimulus check and bought a <laughs> Rodecaster Pro. I bought like the microphones, like they have this whole setup at Guitar Center. I think it's like a thousand bucks. I basically it, took the whole stimulus check and went out and just bought that. It looks like Kanye's 808's machine. So I, I'm yeah, wrong. real talk. Like, shout out to Rode. Uh, feel free to sponsor the show if you guys are, ever hear this and you Come want on, to because Rode. their products are badass. Um, no, I set this up. I set up, I thought I would do it as a live show. So I set up on Twitch uh, for people that know that streaming service. I set up a Google voice account because I didn't want to give out my personal number. So I would have people call Google and then I can run it through the Rodecaster. The first couple of episodes were ridiculous because I didn't have, I've never streamed before. So I've never run OBS, which is a broadcasting software. Um, if you have kids and they watch Twitch, like Ninja and people like that, they know what it is. It's cool. So ask a young person, they'll, they'll explain it. <laughs> 
this was all self-taught. I spent three weeks learning all the technology and then I ran like three shows. I think your show, your interview and like episode, your first one, um, like the fifth episode was the last one that was a live show. And it was just too much. Like the internet would drop, like trying to get people to interact with the show. It wasn't, it was too niche and it was too advanced for me. I would have had to invest it a lot more into technology because I'm an issue. I'm a stickler for quality. And if it wasn't going to be perfect, I didn't want to do it. And those first shows were just wild. Shout out to everybody that was on those first shows that were, I think yours was the last one where I tried to do it on Twitch. After that, I was having people phone in, but like you, Trevor Kocek, Rob Wilson, like Joe Cook, everybody who was on those early shows, thank you so much for doing that because it was nuts. It was purely just a way to give people a free platform. I don't have a ton of followers on Instagram. I've I've gone up a bunch since the pandemic started, but I think I had like, I don't know, 900 people, 1,000 people. Have there been interviews uh, where you thought it would be a good conversation and without naming names, but where you thought it would be a good conversation and then it was like pulling teeth or have there been also, you know, what are some of your highlights? I mean, there's some that have been harder. Um, you and I talked about this on your episode for people that want to go back and listen to that, that it's unfair of us to ask all chefs to be professional chefs and media trained. So there's been a couple that have been harder where I've definitely had to drive the podcast. Um, some of the earlier episodes, you know, when shit was really hitting the fan, they were also just, you know, they were downers. Like, because everybody was like, I don't know what tomorrow brings. I don't know if I'm gonna have a job. I don't know if I'm gonna have a house. So there were some episodes that were tough um, emotionally, for sure. And there were some really hard topics. You know, again, I'm a 33-year-old white dude who, like I said, grew up pretty privileged. After the George Floyd murder, you know, I made it a point to try and sit down with black hospitality professionals or different people of color and had some really tough conversations. sitting down with like chef Anthony Dismuke, who's now the sous chef over at Mayfield in San Juan. Um, you know, he was at a different restaurant when we recorded, but sitting down and talking with that, you know, I've sat down with people since, um, of different backgrounds and kind of nationalities and stuff to talk about some of those things. There's been some hard topics for sure. I mean, there's been some amazing people. Every single person who's been on the podcast has been amazing because it means that they took 30 minutes to an hour out of their day to give their time to me with no justification of why I'm trying to do this. There's no, you know, I don't really give out my analytical numbers. And especially when you're starting a new podcast, there are no numbers. Yeah. So there was a trust aspect with every single person that's been on the show that I'm forever grateful for. But there's been some bangers. I mean, there's been some fun ones. You know, recently I uh, sat down. Frank. Frank, it, Frank Deloche, one of my favorite people in the world. Shout out to Frank. I'm trying to get him back on the show. Depending on when you listen to this episode, it may have already happened. Frank was great. You know, talking about what Pokemon he wants to turn into charcuterie was one of like my favorite segments ever. Can I give one Frank aside real quick? Please. My first interaction with Frank Deloach's food was um, at Playground when he was the sous chef there. And on the menu, it was something that said chicken soft taco. And I ordered it. And he made this like really amazing upscale Del Taco chicken soft taco. And they served them in Del Taco wrappers. <laughs> and that was when I was like, I fuck with this guy's philosophy so hard because it's like, that's, that's why my company is called knife and spork because it's the perfect means between 11 Madison park and fucking McDonald's, you know, like yep, that's so that was a great one. He's a great guy. Um, they've all been good. So I don't want to like alienate anybody. His was really fun. I mean, getting some of the people on the show that I've had makes no sense. I should not be getting some of the guests that I've had, you know, being able to get Andrew Gruel, you know, owner of Slapfish, who's now raising, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for restaurants that are struggling yeah. all over the nightly news. 
you know, Benjamin Martinek from studio down at Montage. I mean, that's a world-class chef taking time out of his day to call in on, you know, this pokey little podcast. Sitting down with a crew from Landers Liquor Bar in Costa Mesa was a shit ton of fun. That was right before St. Patty's Day. We had the, you know, Perno Ricard rep, Hank Lee. So there were many bottles of Jameson. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's fun. I mean, but again, all those early people like you and, and Mike Rooney and just the fun part about this has been talking to, I think a lot of podcasts and rightfully so bring on big names because big names draw. I wanted this to be people that were big names to me. I wanted, you know, if someone has a podcast on where they've got Guy Fieri and Jet Tila and, you know, Antonio LaFaso and all those people, those are great. They obviously are professionals at that level for a reason. They have a lot to tell, but I wanted to celebrate local people. And there's been people outside of it. You know, I've interviewed chefs from Florida, um, Paul Letko of Few Spirits was amazing. The master distiller of there out in Chicago. If you was, need whiskey, was chefs from Florida, Zach, Zach Gearson, Zach, we yeah. miss you, buddy. <laughs> Zach Gearson was amazing, um, and is still amazing. And, and hopefully, he'll find his way back here someday. He'll, he'll be back. But it was all about for me. It was all about just celebrating people that I thought should be celebrated. Yeah, I like that because honestly, um, especially in this industry, I think it's really easy to beat up on yourself and be hard on yourself and always compare yourselves to others that giving people a platform to celebrate what they've accomplished is, is a very good thing. And it, and, and again, and this is not blowing smoke um, up anybody's ass who's listening, but it would not be possible without Patreon. I mean, the people that subscribe monthly, even the people that it's $2 a month that makes all this possible. I mean, again, I had to buy new microphones and cords when I started having multiple guests on. Um, you know, I think the first time I sat down with multiple guests, I didn't know, it was going to be multiple guests. And so they're sharing a microphone. And of course I'm a perfectionist when it comes to this. So I'm like, Oh my God, I hate this. It was, it was the people on that support me monthly that made that happen for me to be able to buy more equipment and continue to grow it. So it's not possible without crowdfunding. And that was a big deal for me is I didn't want to be, I have advertisers. Like I have people that pay to advertise every month and, and other people that have reached out. I've turned down advertisers because they're not the right fit. I don't want to be beholden to advertisers. That's why I wanted it to be crowdfunded and, you know, sustain through that. And if people like what I do, then You're the podcast Bernie support. Sanders, bro. <laughs> as long as I don't end up as a, as a meme, uh, I'm fine. Uh, so uh, a couple of questions for you. What are you looking forward to now that it seems like things are coming back to out of the, you know, to the clear. And um, also what are you hoping doesn't go back to the way it was? That's so funny. Cause that's the number one question I've asked everybody. Um, this is going to sound irresponsible, but I, I mean this kind of facetiously is I can't wait to wake up on a Sunday morning and wonder if I left my credit card at the bar or not. <laughs> like I miss, I miss finishing dinner in Laguna and wandering over to Marine room against all better judgment. I miss having a beer in the saloon at Laguna beach you know, in Laguna beach, again, Laguna beach is in my backyard. So these are just the first ones that are coming to my mind. I miss having a beer at saloon while the sun is kind of like setting. Um, and it kind of creeps in that standing room only bar, which I think should be a national landmark, you know, bouncing around, you know, Newport beach on a Sunday fun day, not having to worry about bumping into, you know, a crowd of people that are bitching about a mask or, or things like that, because I just don't care about that kind of drama. Um, seeing chefs succeed without every news story you know, having to go through an editorial process and, and pay to play for a magazine and without every story being about 
how have they survived? Which, and I'm completely guilty of it too. I mean, pretty much, you know, we're 50 episodes and they've all been during quote unquote a pandemic. So I've been asking that too, but I can't wait to get back to just news stories that don't involve COVID. Um, cocktails to go need to stick around. Mandatory. Outdoor dining needs to stick around. Yes. Mandatory. Restaurants need to step up for themselves and defend themselves against things like Yelp, um, third-party delivery services, things like that. And I think there needs to be a reckoning with the dining public of menu prices. I think that, you know, there's been a lot of stories that have been coming out about menus. You know, people take a picture of it in New York or something like that. Um, I think it was like an Outback Steakhouse. And the manager put a sign up on the door saying, we'd love to serve you, but like we, and I'm paraphrasing here, we don't have enough staff because they don't want to work. And I think there's a lot of reckonings that are coming into the restaurant industry and bar industry and things like that about, well, you need to pay people a living wage. It's not that they don't want to work. It's that if they're making more money on unemployment than they are working, that's an issue that's not unemployment's fault. People aren't making a million dollars on unemployment. I was on unemployment for the vast majority of this thing. Like I said, I lost all my work immediately. I applied for unemployment. I've been on it. I don't, there's no shame in saying that for me. I wasn't making a million dollars. So I think there's some issues that need to be addressed as far as continuing that work-life balance. Um, A lot of people I talked to were in a better place after the shutdown. You know, I I talked to bartenders and things like that that were like, yeah, I got back to being healthy. It gave people a break. Exactly. It was a forced sabbatical. And for a lot of people that grind day in and day out, they needed that. And now, unfortunately, with those hiring freezes and things like that, of just a lack of talent out there and people moving out, you know, we lost, you know, just this week, we, you know, two of Orange County's best bartenders moved down to San Diego. So that's on top of some of the chefs that have left and other bartenders and things like that. So talent is leaving. And I hope that there will be kind of a recognition of we need to charge more in our menus to pay these people a living wage so they will stick around. And if you're a customer, stop yelling at our hostess or get the fuck out. And also, if you're a customer, like, don't be mad when that happens. Mm-hmm. We Like, we live in one of the most well-off countries and mo- one of the most well-off times in the history of humanity. Like, let's just enjoy that privilege, you know? Yeah, it doesn't suck out here. Yeah, so exactly. stop making it suck. Man, is there anything you want to say about the future of your podcast? What you have planned for episodes 51 through 100? It's weird being on the other side of the microphone. That's This is new, but it's fun. And I'm appreciative for the uh, time to do something kind of special for episode 50. I mean, it's just going to keep growing, I hope. Um, there's professionals that you know I want to have on. Obviously, things are kind of chaotic. Trying to release it week to week is a lot of work. Um, but I'm proud to do it. I'm very proud of it. I'm very, you know, whatever benefit it's brought to people, and I hope it's some, um, I'm incredibly proud of it. And I'm just thankful for everybody that listens and supports. And again, this is a very small endeavor. You know, I don't I don't have editors. I have a Grammarly account. I don't have a graphic designer. I have Canva. Like, I, you know, this is a, definitely a one-man band type of show. So the support from you and everybody who's been on the show and everybody who listens to the show and shares and supports, um, the feedback I get from hospitality professionals, even though, like I said, my greatest flaw is having not worked hospitality is that they're supportive of it and they like what I'm doing. So that has to mean something good. So I'm just going to keep doing it and hopefully people will keep supporting. Yeah, you know, um, something that you said earlier that um, stuck out to me and maybe it's a good way to like wrap things up is that you said, I don't have a journalism degree. They just let me do it. And I think that they wouldn't let you do that unless you show that you have a passion for it. And I think that I like... I know a lot of chefs, man, they don't give anybody the time of day unless they believe in those people. And so I think that, um, 
that says a lot about what you're building and the stories you're telling. So, you know, from a, from a perspective of me looking in, keep doing what you're doing because we need people like you telling the stories of individual restaurants because these individual restaurants, you know, there's one, there's 10,000 restaurants in Orange County. Um, it's so easy to get lost in the mix. And two, we're up against all of the big corporate chains that are here. And when I moved to Orange County in 2000 and I don't know, something early 2000s, um, there were way more chains than independent restaurants. And now it feels like there's so many independent restaurants and it wouldn't be a scene without people like you and uh, what you're doing specifically. So well, I appreciate that, brother. Keep it up, man. And congratulations to 50 episodes. Fuck yeah. Thank you, man. Thank you for doing this. This has been fun. I appreciate it. I'm not going to do the regular show sign off because people know where they can find me on social media. So thank you to everybody who's listening. Um, if you've been listening from episode one or if this is your first one, welcome. But yeah, thank you for the support. Thank you for your client support and friends and continue to share the show. Continue to live well and often and just be good. And for God's sake, stay off Yelp unless it's a five star. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, brother. I appreciate it, man. Oh, for sure. Peace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Niaz, for sitting down and putting your culinary, or not your culinary, well, your culinary too, your journalism skills up to the test and providing what I thought was a hell of an interview. Um, thank you again to everybody that listens to each and every episode, whether this is your first, like I said in the beginning, or you've been here since day one. I cannot tell you what this means to me, the support that I get every single day, the feedback that I get every single day on this initiative, and whether it's the podcast, whether it's the you know the video series, The Pass, whether it's all of the other content, that is coming. I know some of it has been delayed. Unfortunately, real life does tend to take a toll sometimes when you're doing a uh, self-funded initiative, as I'm sure many of you who are out there hustling every day know. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I cannot say it enough to be here and to have 50 episodes of something that was just a pipe dream for so long. It means the world. Thank you again. I know it's redundant at this point, but I got to say it. Don't forget that you can go to patreon.com slash the best seats to get early ad free listening to each and every one of these episodes. You can get early access to every episode of the past. You'll be able to get episodes early of thoughts and prayers and stars when that launches early blog content, etc. It's all over there on Patreon. If you're listening on free feeds, I love you just as much. Thank all of you. I'll see you soon. Take care. The Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Robert McCarthy, founder and owner of The Best Seats. It is recorded in Aliso Viejo, California. It is subsidized through generous donations through patreon.com slash the best seats. The following are names that have subscribed at the highest tier, aka norm status, and thus allow me to produce the show each and every episode. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Here are the supporters. Alexander Cook, Cheryl McCarthy, Elliot, George Pavlov, Serena Warino, Pizza Guy 92. Thank you for your support.